Okay, we are so glad that you're here, and we are so excited that we get to start a brand new sermon series that we're calling Unbelievable, Eight Reasons Why Christianity or the Christian Worldview Makes Sense. And so what we want to do over these eight weeks is we want to address some of the common objections that are lobbed at Christianity and against the Christian faith. These are obstacles to believing or questions or doubts that we have ourselves, that our friends have, that our neighbors have, that our coworkers have, that people who we love in the city have, uh, obstacles and questions and struggles with accepting the Christian world view. And so what we want to do is try our best to humbly, with clarity and conviction and humility, address these questions. won the debate or the dialogue, right? I, I picture in my mind those movie scenes where there's sort of a rap battle or a dance-off, and they go, oh, did you see that? Um, you don't want to see me dance, so we're not going to do that at all. That's not the heart behind any of this. For one, we're not smart enough to do that. We're not philosophers. We're not scholars. I'm a Christian pastor who believes the scriptures, and so since we have questions, we do, since people we love have questions, we want to do our best in humility to address these questions with what we hope are sound and reasonable responses to objections to the Christian faith. Our desire in doing this is that over these four years as a church, I have, you have, met lots and lots of people, thoughtful people, intelligent people, uh, well-meaning, genuine, kind people who have genuine, honest questions about the Christian worldview and the Christian faith. Genuine struggles that are difficult to overcome. And so we want to uh, address them, uh, serve in that way. In some ways, a few years ago, we did this. We used to run something called Doubt Night at the local Starbucks on Red Line Road. And in those nights, we'd have folks who were believers and folks who were not believers gather together, and we'd have dialogue. Passionate, lively dialogue, robust dialogue. We disagree about all kinds of things, and yet our friendship remained intact and does so to this day. And so that's our hope as well. For the religious folks in the room, as much as you'd like, the skeptics are not going away. And for the skeptics in the room, as much as you'd like, the religious folks are not going away. And so what we're hoping for is to learn to talk with one another rather than past one another. We also want to let you know that this series, or the heart behind it, is not mainly just for skeptics as well. Because if we're honest, those of us who are believers have questions. Genuine, sincere, honest questions. And perhaps for some of us, you grew up even in a context, in a family or a church, where you were never allowed to ask questions. And so what you likely did was buried your doubts deep down so that the first time you met a well-read skeptic, or took a religion class in a liberal arts college, your faith was thrown into panic because you never honestly engaged your doubts. You never seriously wrestled with your doubts. And so what we want to do here is provide a venue where you can honestly ask your questions, where you can wrestle with your doubts. You can struggle through these things with our hope being that afterwards you might come out with an even stronger faith. You might come out with even greater reason to believe. Our hope is, if you're here and you find Christianity unbelievable, and by that you mean gloriously, life-changingly true, the reality by which you see all things now, or if you're here and you find Christianity unbelievable, and by that you mean irrational, made-up, myth, legend, not true, or worse, hopefully we'll be able to engage one another over these next eight weeks. To do that, we want to do that in two sort of formats or venues. One is what we're doing right here on Sunday mornings. And so each Sunday for the next eight weeks, what we want to do is tackle one of these objections. And one of our preachers will offer, as best as we are able, a cogent and what we hope is sound and reasonable response from the scriptures to present to you what the Christian worldview on that issue is. But if you've ever been in these kinds of conversations, you know that what 
one question does, as it's addressed, is tend to lead to more questions and more questions. And so we know that that is going to require some kind of dialogue and interaction. And so what we want to do outside of Sundays, so that you're not just hearing, but have a chance to respond, is that each of our smaller communities, we call them GCMs, they're scattered throughout the region, are going to be meeting every other week and dialoguing through some of the things we're talking about here on Sundays. And so if you're interested in furthering the conversation beyond what you hear today, we'd invite you to come and participate in that. If you talk to Pastor Binu, who was up here before, he can point you to a dialogue that will be happening in a spot in the region that's near you, and you can jump in on that conversation so that you can interact with folks on these things. We're also going very high-tech, you'll notice. And on the screen, there's a number. Uh, if you've got questions throughout this day, I think it's 51641-TRUTH. If you've got questions throughout this day as we're talking, as you think about them, if you'd like to even ask them anonymously, you can text in that question and we will do our best this week itself to respond to those questions through our blog and through our website. So we want to provide for you every possible venue in which we can dialogue through these things together. Hopefully you hear our heart as we begin these eight weeks. With that then laid out, we want to address the first of the questions that we want to tackle today, and that is, how can you really trust the Bible, right? Everything that we're going to say today and for these eight weeks is based on the scriptures, and every week we stand up and we say something like, at the center of our service, we turn our attention to God's word, and perhaps you've been here four years and just let that pass over you, but today especially that makes sense to hear again, why do we do that? Why is it that we stand here from God's word? How can you really trust the Bible? And so if I were to flesh that out, some of the objections, some of the questions would be, look, the Bible has lots of cool stories, but you don't really believe it, do you? Or we might hear, look, the Bible might be good literature, but it's full of contradictions. It's legend, not history. It's myth, not fact. It's outdated, historically unreliable. We don't even know if the copies that we have of things like the New Testament are the actual words. What we have are copies of copies of copies of copies, and so on the questions will go. If I could try and state the objection in one sort of question or sentence, it would be, while the Bible may be good literature, it is not true and therefore is not authoritative or binding over our lives. Now, how might we respond? We don't want to pretend in any of these eight weeks that we have a proof that's a knockout punch. If so, this world wouldn't have these dialogues. But what we do want to do is, as best as we can, respond with reason and hopefully a sound argument. How might we respond? More than ever, I want to pray for help now and pray for help for you as well. So let's, let me lead you in a moment of prayer, and then we'll press into this together. Our God who is there, we seek you now. We do believe that we are speaking past this ceiling or past this floor to a God who is there, to a God who hears, to a God who can act. And so we beseech you now, come and help us by your Holy Spirit. Come and help my mouth that it would hug tightly to your truth and not flow from it. Uh, we pray that you would come and help our ears that we might hear. Your word tells us that on our own, our eyes are blind and do not see. Ears are hard and deaf. They do not hear. Our hearts are hard and do not believe. Our minds are dark. They cannot understand. But we know that your word can come and bring light and bring sight and bring hearing and bring life. We ask that you would do this so that you might draw us into a relationship with yourself through your word and through your son. It's in his name that we ask these things and pray. Amen. How might we respond? The first thing I would want to say is everybody has a Bible. Let me say that again. The first thing I would want to say is that everybody has a Bible. And here's what I mean by that. All of us have a set of beliefs. If you're here or you're engaging this conversation, particularly if you're a skeptic, you might be thinking that you're coming into this conversation and this conversation is essentially one of faith versus reason. 
right? You're rational, you've got reason on your side, and the folks here who believe are those who have faith. And this is essentially a conversation between David and Goliath. This is faith versus reason. What I want to submit to you, what I'd have you think through is, in reality, all of us have a set of beliefs. All of us have some assumptions that we believe to be true that cannot be proven, that cannot be empirically verified or validated, and we live our lives by these assumptions. That all of us are in both sides of the equation, full of faith and reason. That this isn't a conversation of faith versus reason. This is a conversation of faith and reason versus faith and reason. For example, if you're here and you doubt the Bible because the Bible's filled with miracles. I mean, a man gets swallowed by a whale. uh, Water turns into wine. A sea parts in half. I mean, you'd go, there's no way this thing can't be true because there's miracles. And yet... Hear this, try as you may, no one has been able to ever disprove miracles. It's an assumption. And, and men smarter than us have way, uh, written thousands of pages, and yet you've never been able to land on it. At the end of the day, it cannot be tested, it cannot be proven, it cannot be empirically verified. It is an assumption. Or you come here and you say you can't believe the Bible, for example, because the Bible contends that there's one true God that can't possibly be. There can't be just one true religion. A whole question we'll deal with by itself next week. But behind that doubt, hear me, is faith, is a belief. There, it takes faith to doubt Christianity. It takes beliefs to doubt Christianity. Because behind that, uh, that statement, there can't be just one true religion, is a bunch of beliefs. Perhaps for you, it's because you think that all truth is relative. Right? What's true for you may be true for you. What's true for me is true for me. But hear this. That can't be empirically tested or verified or validated or proven as true. It's not self-evident. It's certainly not shared by all of humanity. If you went to Israel and said there is no one true truth or God or went to Saudi Arabia and made that claim, no one there would agree. It's not self-evident to all. What it is is a leap of faith is a statement of belief. It cannot be proven. So, for example, if you say you don't believe the Bible because there can't be a God, and if there is a God, he's not going to care about this one speck of cosmic dust called Earth down to the point that he cares about what we think, what we believe, what goes on in our minds and brains. Hear this. Underneath that doubt is an assumption. An assumption about if there is a God, what he would actually be like is a faith. It's a belief. What we're saying is this is not faith versus reason. This is you don't believe in A because you do believe in B. It's not a vacuum as if you're standing on some kind of neutral ground. You don't believe in A because you do believe in B. You don't believe there is a God because you do believe there is no God. And there's no proof for either, as if either could be verified or tested or proven true. Let me read you a quote. I I read a quote by a man named Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is one of the most outspoken atheists in our day, written a book called The God Delusion. In an interview, this is what he said. I want you to hear it. I cannot know for certain, but I think God is very improbable, and I live my life on the assumption that he is not there. I so respect the candor of that statement because here is a man of science who lives his life by what is under a microscope, what can be tested, what can be proven, and at the end of the day, when you trace the why, how do you know, how do you know, how do you know, back far enough, he says to you, I'm living my life on an assumption. What that is, is I'm living my life on a belief What that means is he is as much a man of faith as we all are. All I'm trying to suggest is that all of us are believers in one way or another. I've read more professors and scholars and nerds this week than you could possibly imagine, okay? Let me me give you one quote from a sociology professor at Notre Dame. This is a man named Christian Smith. This is what he says. He says, what we have come to to see is that at bottom, we are all really believers. 
The lives that we live and the knowledge we possess are based crucially on sets of basic assumptions and beliefs. These we believe in so deeply that we do not even think about them. None of those beliefs, however, can be verified as definitively true in fact. There is simply nothing that could do so. All we can do is assume them in faith and then presumably find them to be sufficiently trustworthy and functional assumptions to live by. Here's essentially, if I could boil that thing down, what he's saying is, look, all of us live our lives based on a set of beliefs. And he goes on to say, we don't even think about them. They're so deep down there, we don't even recognize them. We're not even sometimes cognizantly aware of them. It's sort of like your skeleton, right? You can't see my bones. I don't even think that they're there, but they uphold everything about me. They support everything else. They're invisible, but they're there. And so are your beliefs in that they're down there. You may not even be aware of them or think through them, but they shape everything about you. All the choices you make, all the ways in which you live your life are shaped by these invisible but deeply held beliefs. And this is, this is said by me not as some kind of philosophical checkmate. This is not a chess move. But simply to say again, we've all got some beliefs that shape everything about us. For example, if you say, like I've heard many people in our city say, look, the point of life is we're here for a little while. We might as well do all that we can to be happy because then we're gone. That's a common sentiment. And yet, that simple statement has within itself, deep down, so many assumptions about what life is about, about the purpose and meaning of life, about where life is going, how long we'll be here, destiny, purpose, meaning, all those things are deeply held in everyday sentences that you and I make. What we're saying is, our beliefs affect who you marry, what job you take, where you live, where you work, what you think life is about, what you do, all of that is connected to belief. And here's the point. The point is if you took all those basic beliefs that we all live by, if you took your basic beliefs and you wrote them down and you bound them into a book, you know what you'd have? You'd have your Bible. We've all got one. Everybody has a Bible. Everybody has a set of beliefs. If you wrote down all of your basic beliefs, you bound them together in a book, you'd have your version of the Bible. Those things by which you live your life. Those standards by which you see all things. And so what we want to say for these eight weeks is this is not a conversation about faith versus reason. This is a conversation about Bible versus Bible. This is a conversation about a set of beliefs versus a set of beliefs. And the question we want to ask is which Bible then most consistently, most coherently explains reality as it really is? Which set of beliefs helps us see reality as it really is? There's some basic questions all of us ask. You may not even be aware that you ask them. Questions like, where did we come from? Why are we here? What's right? What's wrong? Where are we going? What's this all about? Whether you know you answer them or not, all of us live our lives in response to some answers to those kinds of questions. And the question for us is, which Bible best addresses consistently and coherently that kind of understanding? I want to say again, this is foundational, not just for what we want to talk about today, but for this whole series. So that if you're coming in, and perhaps if you're here and you're a skeptic, what I would want to say to you, humbly submit to you, is you owe it to yourself to at least recognize. It's not as if Christians are entering in the conversation and they've put on a set of lenses called the Bible by which they now see everything, but that you're coming into the conversation without a need for lenses at all. Because you see ultimate reality just because your eyes are so very awesome. The reality is all of us see the world through a set of lenses. All of us have a worldview, a way in which we view the world. And so the question is, which set of lenses best help us see reality as it really is? Which worldview helps us to assess reality as it really is? is you can't escape having beliefs the question is 
is the Bible of your own making because of your own authority, because you say this is the way the world is, is that what is most consistently, most coherently going to give you a worldview of reality? One Russian writer said, if there is no God, then I am God. And his point is, if there's no God, then I'm God. I get to dictate what is right, what is wrong, what is real, what is not. We all get to invent Bibles of our own making. If there is no God, each of us gets to dictate what life is about, what meaning is about, what purpose is about. We each get to bind our own books. And the Christian response is to come in and to say, listen, we can know reality because ultimate reality has revealed it to us in the scriptures so that we might rightly see the world as it is. So we might rightly know things as they are. So the first thing I would simply contend as you go through this week and through these eight weeks is we've all got a Bible. If that is the case, then let me tell you briefly about the Christian Bible. And what we want to do then is we want to let the Bible speak for itself. What I want to do is let the Bible speak to you about itself. And the reason is we want you to know that we're not making claims on this book. It's not as if Seven Mile Road got together and decided to make a big deal about the book. Or a bunch of Christians or power brokers decided, let's, let's trump this book up. What we want you to see this week and throughout these eight weeks is your struggle is not with Seven Mile Road. Your struggle is with the scriptures. And we want to bring you to the scriptures to say, this is the book you have to deal with, that you have to assess. You may be here, and I want to grant you, you may say, but that's just it. I don't believe the scriptures. How are you going to use the Bible to validate the Bible? And I'd, I'd, I'd hear you. I hear you. But what I would say is, look, if a scientist was going to try and talk to you about science, he couldn't prove science without talking about science. Or if you were to say, look, we should, not be, we should be rational, for example. We should use reason. And I'd say to you, why? You know what you'd give me? You'd give me a reason. You'd try to validate rational thought with reason. You'd try to validate reason with a reason. You'd be flipping open your Bible. And so what we want to do is we want to, we can't step outside of our worldview to speak about our worldview. We want to let the scriptures speak for itself. So here, some of the claims that the Bible makes of itself. For example, the Bible claims to have come from God. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17 says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This verse is coming because there's an apostle, a follower of Jesus named Paul. And he's writing to a man named Timothy, and he's warning Timothy, Listen, Timothy, the day is coming when folks are going to give you all kinds of teaching. Don't you stray from the scriptures. Because all scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, it's come from God. Another apostle named Peter says something similar in 2 Peter 1.21. He says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter's in this chapter where he's saying, look, you can trust us because we were eyewitnesses. We saw Jesus, we heard him. But then he goes on to say, you don't have to just trust us. You can trust the scriptures, and then speaking of the scriptures, he says, but know this, none of the prophetic words, none of the words from God have come from men, but what it really is, is carried along by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. The scriptures, moreover, claim not just to have come from God, hear this, it claims to have be the very words of God. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 it says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Here's what that text is. Again, the Apostle Paul is writing to a, a city called Thessalonica. And he's saying, I'm so grateful to God that when we came to you and preached the scriptures, you received it for what it is, not the words of men, but the words of God. And so the scriptures are claiming to not only have come from God, to be the very words of God. And as the words of God, 
The scripture claims itself to be trustworthy and true. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. If this book is the word of God, then Proverbs is coming along and adding and saying every word of God is true. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. That is, if this word has come from God, and it is God's words, and every one of God's words are true, then Psalm 119 adds, and the sum of all those words, namely this book, is truth. We could read verses for about an hour of what the Bible makes claim of itself, but perhaps more than anything, Christians would say this. Listen, we trust in Jesus, and Jesus trusted the Bible. I want to say that again. We trust in Jesus, and Jesus trusted the Bible. Jesus' opinion of the scriptures were that they were, in fact, the very words of God. For example, in Matthew 19, there's this scene where some of the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders of the day, Jesus was always in a fight with them. They come to Jesus to trip him and trap him and trick him, and so they ask him, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I don't want to touch divorce today or what the scriptures teach on that. I just want you to hear how Jesus responds. This is Matthew 19, verse 4. He answered, have you not read that he who created them, pause for a second, who's that? That's God. Have you not read that God from the beginning made them male and female and said, who said it? God said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Here's the thing. In verse 5, Jesus is quoting Genesis 2, verse 24. He's saying, have you not read that God, who made the male and female, God said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and, and become one with his wife. Here's the thing. Genesis 24 is not a direct quote from God. It's commentary from Moses. Moses wrote Genesis 2, 24. And he wasn't quoting God, he was just giving comment. As he saw Adam and Eve in creation, he commented Genesis 2.24. Yet Jesus quotes it to say, God said it. That what Moses said in the scriptures, God said. We trust Jesus, Jesus trusted his Bible. In fact, Jesus quotes almost every book of the Tanakh, the Old Covenant the first half of our Bibles, and he quotes them as being true. You know, all the stories we're embarrassed by in the Bible, Noah and the flood, Jonah and the whale, all those stories, Adam and Eve in a garden, Jesus quotes them as true. Jesus believed his Bible, and here's the thing, here's why this is important, because if we can trust what the Bible says about Jesus, then Jesus believed the whole book. And that's important. If you ask me why I trust the Old Testament, my response in a short way would be because Jesus did. If you ask me why I trust the Old Testament, my response would be because Jesus did. And if you're a believer, that makes perfect sense. You trust in Jesus. Jesus trusts something, you trust it too. If Jesus is who he said he is, then you trust everything that Jesus trusts. But I want to say, even if you're a skeptic, it's relevant. And the reason is, if Jesus is who the scriptures say that he is, if he is who the gospels, for example, say that he is, God come in the flesh, if he was born of a virgin, if he did live, if he was sinless, if he was perfect, if all that he said was true, if he did die, if he did rise again, if he is truly the son of God, then you can trust what he believes, and he believed the scriptures. You would say to back, me, back to me, rightly so, but that's just it. How on earth can we trust what the Bible says about Jesus? Right? It, it sort of follows that if you can trust what the Bible says about Jesus, you can trust what Jesus trusted, the scriptures. But the question rightly for us will be, but that's just it. We have a hard time trusting what the Bible says about Jesus. And there's lots of reasons. Some of them are because we believe science has perhaps disproved this whole thing. 
That's a whole question we'll tackle in a few weeks, so you got to come back. Huh? Some of us would say, look, if, if I could categorize some of our responses, it might be that we find this just historically unreliable. So what I want to do is very briefly just give you some reasons why you might be able to trust what the Bible says with certainty about Jesus and trust Jesus about the Bible. We might say, look, this book is just historically unreliable. In fact, some, some folks might want to help us out and say, listen, don't put yourself on the hook. This book has plenty of spiritual meaning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're chock full of spiritual meaning. Just don't insist that they're history. Just, just accept, and we'll all accept, that there's some good spiritual meaning there. Just don't insist that these Gospels are giving you a historical account of Jesus Christ. And as helpful as that might be, and as quickly as we could all just go home, the problem is the Gospels won't give you that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John won't give you that. For example, one preacher said it like this. If I was writing an account and sent into the newspaper editor, and I wrote an account that said, I am an eyewitness to what happened in North Philly. On January 25th at 12 p.m., this happened at this time. This occurred and gave a full account and sent that into the editor. And the editor put that into the poetry section. Would that be fair? No, because I would write back and say, no, 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 no. I'm not saying this is some kind of good meaning or some kind of good thing we should consider. I'm giving you historical fact. This is an eyewitness account. you got to file this in nonfiction. It will not do to put this in the editorial section or the poetry section. And the gospel writers do the same thing. They do everything they can to go out of their way to signal this is eyewitness accounts. These are historical facts. For example, let me read for you how Luke 1 begins. In Luke 1, verses 1, this is how the gospel starts. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good also to me, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. You know what Luke is doing? Luke is flagging you down, saying, this is a historical account. There were eyewitnesses. I followed all this closely. I compiled all the facts that I found. So I wrote you an orderly account of the narrative that took place. Luke won't let you take it off the hook. The Gospels won't let you take it off the hook. And so what you must at least come to is either this is all a lie or it's eyewitness account. But what it can't be is spiritual meaning. Just good spiritual thoughts for us. So then why might we consider these Gospels to actually be trustworthy, reliable documents that tell us the truth about Jesus? Let me just give you two quick reasons, and then we'll start wrapping up. This is not original to me by any means. Men much smarter than me have thought through this. And so one reason why I would submit to you and contend that the Gospels cannot be merely legend is that they were simply written too early to be legend. In Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, a book that we'll be using, a book that has been a great resource as we've even thought through shaping this series, he, he mentions the Gospels are simply too early to be legend. And here's what he means by that. If I wrote a book tomorrow that said, Apple Computer Company is a company that started in 1984 by Bill Gates in New York City, where it got its name after the Big Apple. How, how likely is that to spread? That would never get off the ground simply because we're too soon, we're too close to the event itself. There's way too many people to discredit that and go, no way. This wasn't started by Bill Gates. This was Steve Jobs and, and so on. We just celebrated this weekend the 30th birthday of Apple. This is in our lifetime. We're talking about one generation. We're not far removed. This thing could never take off the ground because there's too many eyewitnesses to discredit the whole thing for what it is, just a fabrication. And yet, hear this, the New Testament letters 
Letters talking about the miracles of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus were written in shorter gap than we are to Apple. Some of Paul's letters were written 15 to 25 years after Jesus' death. In fact, it names names. And, and scholars have said, you know why there's these passages where all of a sudden it just mentions a name? It's as if to say, these eyewitnesses are still here. Go talk to them. Simon is, Jesus carrying a cross in Mark. Out of nowhere you get this detail that Simon of Cyrene, the son of Rufus, came and helped him. What does that have to do with anything? Except it's the writer's way of saying, look, there's witnesses here still alive in this generation. You can go ask them. These accounts were written far too early for them to simply be legends. The Gospels themselves were written 40 to 60 years after his death. Within one generation, this thing could have never taken off in the movement that it was if there were enough people and there were plenty who hated the Christian claim to simply discredit it. Plenty who would have been motivated to do so. And yet these men report within sheer decades of what they had witnessed with their eyes. Another reason why you might consider that the Gospels can't simply just be legends is because it's too counterproductive the way that they're written. What do we mean by that? If the Gospels were written as just some kind of fit, myth, some kind of fib, and you were trying to get people to believe it, you would never write the Gospels the way that it's written if you were trying to spread a lie. Here's what I mean. If we were back in the South before the Civil War, there's plantations, there's slaves, all of it. If I were going to make up a myth and a lie that I wanted everybody to believe, all my, my friends to believe, all the white slave owners to believe, would I base the whole thing on the testimony, for example, of a black slave? Would I base this whole myth on the testimony of black slave and say we should all believe it? When I know that all the people in my day don't even see them as valid or humans or their word to be trusted. Wouldn't I find some trustworthy person respected in the community and put the testimony on their back so that this thing could fly? Why would the Gospels, if this is just a myth, hoping for get, to get everyone to believe, base, for example, something like the resurrection of Jesus? You think that's a big deal for their faith? the resurrection of Jesus, and put that on the backs of some women who, at least in that day, were not thought of highly at all. In fact, historians tell us that if a woman were to speak in court, her testimony would not even be admissible. Nobody trusted, nobody went to a woman for what could be verified as true. Why would the Gospels, if you're making up a myth or a legend, make its first eyewitnesses women? if everybody was just going to dismiss that, unless you couldn't help it because that's how it actually happened. Why wouldn't you put it, for example, on the back of Peter, who was going to become the leader of the church? And even if you think about how the gospel speak of its leaders, if you're going to launch a whole movement and say, here's Peter at the head of it, why would you fib and include the accounts of Peter looking like such an idiot? Right? He's... he's speaking when he shouldn't, he's betraying the Lord, and now you're going to prop him up as the leader of the whole movement. Wouldn't you pick a giant of a man? Why would you include these things that seem to undermine the whole myth? Or, for example, why would you include the narrative of Jesus in the garden? If, if you're trying to convince the world that Jesus is God in the flesh, how likely is a scene where he's sweating blood, begging God to not have to die, how would that serve your claim that this is God? I mean, literally, historians, people in the early centuries struggled with that passage and figured this can't be God. Because how could God in the flesh beg and cry, please don't let me have to die? These myths, if that's what they were, would be too counterproductive if it was simply a legend. Unless you might consider them for what they might be, eyewitness accounts of what actually happened. There's more that scholars say. For example, in the olden days, they didn't have fables and stories like we have them now. If you go back and read the, the letters and the stories of antiquity, you'll find that they didn't include what we would call modern prose fiction. What we mean is when you read a novel now, 
you'll read, and the blue-eyed girl walked through the meadow and took 10 steps, and it doesn't have anything to the story, but it adds some realism to it. We expect that. That's not how fiction worked back then, that nobody added meaningless details. And yet, in the gospel accounts, you find all kinds of details all over the place, details that have nothing to do with the story. Jesus is in a boat, and the storm is coming, and he's sleeping on a cushion. Or they caught some fish. There was 153 of them. Details that have nothing to do with the story, and yet they're imported in almost as if, again, it's signaling, this is an eyewitness account of what occurred. In dialogue, we can talk through many more. What I'd simply contend to you is these Gospels are reliable, and if they're reliable, then we can believe what it says about Jesus, and if we can believe what it says about Jesus, we can believe what Jesus thought of the book. There's much more we could say. Some of you might say, but how do we know we have the actual words of the New Testament? After all, all we have are copies of copies of copies of copies. And hear this, that's true. We don't have a single copy of the original letter that went out from Paul. We don't have a single parchment straight from Mark's pen. So what, what are we to do? What I'd simply say very quickly, and you could spend another hour on this as well, is when you compare the Bible, for example, with other ancient Greek documents, it's not even a fair fight. For example, the average classical Greek writer's documents, we have about 20 copies. That's on average. We have about 5,800 copies of the New Testament. In fact, if you, if you piled them, one, one scholar named Daniel Wallace said, if you piled all the other classics and the copies we have of them, they'd be about four feet high, a stack up to here. If you piled the copies we have of the New Testament, it'd reach a mile into the sky. We have so many of them. For example, the, the closest competitor outside of Greek historians is now uh, Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad, the first copy we have of Homer's Iliad is half a millennium after it was written. 500 years later, we found now, they've found now about 2,000 copies. The first fragments of the New Testament are not hundreds of years later. It's, it's decades later. You have a fragment of John's gospel, and it only grows as it keeps going, and you have nearly three times as many. Here's the point. You could talk all day about why there is reasonable evidence for this, but he, here's what I'd say. The reason we're not up in arms about whether Homer's Iliad is verifiable, trustable, or true is, you know what, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But we assess a level of skepticism to the Bible much greater than Homer's Iliad because if this thing is true, it makes claims on our lives that the Iliad doesn't. It doesn't matter for you if the Iliad is true, but if this thing can be trusted and is true, it makes claims on your lives in incredible ways. If Jesus really is God in the flesh, if he really did die, if he did rise again, if he is who he says he is, it changes everything. And what the scriptures would say is that for some of us, there is no argument or evidence that would ever suffice because if we're committed to a Bible of our own making, then this Bible will never do. Hear me. That's from Jesus. If you're committed to a Bible of your own authority because there is no God, I am God, then this Bible will never do. I'll give you a quick illustration. Jesus once said that there was a, a rich man who went to hell and a poor man who went to heaven. It's not historical. He's just giving a story. And in this story, the poor man is with Abraham in heaven and the rich man is in hell. And the rich man cries out and says, would you send this man back to earth so that he can tell my living brothers so they might not end up here as well? What he's essentially saying is, please give them some kind of sign. If they see someone come back from the dead, then they'll know this is true. Give us some kind of sign, some kind of evidence. And all throughout Jesus' life, people were asking for that. Jesus would walk on water, he'd feed the 5,000, still the Pharisees would come and they'd say, give us a sign and we'll believe. And Jesus would never play their tricks. And you wonder, sometimes I'm reading, I go, why not do something then? They'd all believe. 
And yet Jesus is convinced of something. Look into what he says in Luke 16, verses 29 and 31. In the story, he uses Abraham's mouth to say, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he, that's the rich man, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, these men are coming and saying, give us some kind of evidence, some kind of amazing sign that would help us believe as something that we could see. And Jesus retorts to them back, if you won't believe Moses and the prophets, that is, if you won't believe the scriptures, then even if someone should come back from the dead, you will not believe. No evidence will suffice if you are committed to a Bible of your own making, if you will be an authority unto yourself. And hear that, that I listened to a, a debate from a man named uh, Christopher Hitchens. He's now passed away. He was an outspoken, very articulate atheist. In fact, I, I loved reading his readings. He was very outspoken and, and seemed to understand things well. He was in a debate where he said, listen, I'll grant you the whole thing. I'll grant you the virgin birth. I'll grant you the miracles. I'll even grant you that he came back from the dead. And he followed that up by saying, and it wouldn't change a thing. It wouldn't make me a Christian, and it shouldn't make you one either. Because Jesus is saying, if Moses and the prophets, if the scriptures will not suffice, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And so the question is, we've all got a Bible. You're either going to be committed to one of your own authority and your own making, or you're going to receive the scriptures. We've talked through a number of things. Everybody has a Bible. We've tried to let the Bible speak for itself. We've tried to provide some reasons why the Bible might be trustworthy and what it says about Jesus. And if we trust who Jesus is, we can trust what Jesus thought of the book. But here's what I want to say as we end. If this book is true, and I would submit and agree with many of you that for some of you that is a huge if, if this book were true, it would be really good news. If this book were true, if there is a God, then here, here's where we are. None of us can know what he's like. If there is a God out there and we're here, we have no, you might take a guess at what God is like. I might take a guess at what God is like. None of us would truly know. It sort of would be like if Katniss Everdeen was trying to guess what Suzanne Collins is like, right? Katniss Everdeen is in this, the new novels, The Hunger Games. Suzanne Collins is the author. The task you're sort of laying at us is to have Katniss Everdeen prove Suzanne Collins. And, and there's no way you would know unless, unless God revealed himself to us. Unless God revealed himself to us. And if he does that, then what it shows is that this God actually wants to be known by you. That would be good news. That if there is a God, he hasn't left us in the dark groping around for what God might be like. But wants to be known so much so that he has revealed himself so that you might actually know him. If this book is true, then this book is evidence God wants to know you. God wants you to know him. God doesn't even want you to know facts. He wants to know you personally. He wants you to know him personally. If this book is true, then it's the good news that the creator of all things actually wants to be known by you. He's revealed himself so that you might know him, so that you might know him personally, so that you might actually have a relationship with him. If this book were true, it would mean that this God wants you to have a personal relationship. If I were to tell you one thing about this book, 66 books written across 1,000 years by various people in various languages, it's got one message from beginning to end. That this God went out of, moved heaven and earth so that he could know you and you could know him. No, wants to know you so bad that he not only gave you a book but gave his son. The Bible says 
In the former days, we had the scriptures, but now in these last days, God has spoken through his son. God has come in the flesh so that we might know him. And the story of this book from beginning to end is this. God created you. You rebelled against him. You know what we are? We're a bunch of Katniss Everdeens on a quest to prove that Suzanne Collins doesn't exist. And you think of that. We were made up. Literally, we were made up. And we're claiming that reality does not exist. And yet, God looked past that rebellion and wrote himself into the story, took on flesh so that he might bear the weight of our rebellion so that we might actually be brought in relationship to God. If you're here and you're a skeptic, here's all I'd say to you. You have a Bible. Would you consider this one? And see if the lenses of your own making make sense of reality or if this worldview speaks to what the world is as it truly is. And if you're here and you're a believer, can I speak to you for one second? I want you to hear that ultimately your faith in this book is not because you can memorize three clever arguments. Would you hear that again? For some of us, all this is like this. It just goes like that. But your faith is not rooted because you can memorize four clever arguments that when a skeptic comes, you bring them out in perfect fashion and you, you win the debate. Your faith rests because through this book, you met a person. You met a person named Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, the Bible is not trying to make a big deal of itself. The Bible would not be happy if you left out of here with a greater respect for the Bible. The Bible's hope is to point you to a person. You met Jesus Christ. Your faith is in him. Through the pages of this book, through the words of this book, you came to meet Christ. And the Holy Spirit testifies to your spirit that this is true. That's where your faith rests. Not in four clever arguments you can memorize. Your faith rests in him. You've met him. You've come to know him. And one challenge I would say to us all, one conviction that I was convicted of this week is please don't let it be that we so badly want to win this debate. We want to prove that the Bible is trustworthy and true. This is absolutely God's word so that it can collect dust on our shelves. That would be a tragedy. If you so badly want to engage in this conversation, win this argument so that it can go on resting on your shelf, collecting dust. Rather, the scriptures would say, if you meet Jesus here, then devour the scriptures so that you might personally come to know him. I want to contend to you we can trust in Jesus. And because we can trust in Jesus, we can trust in this book. Let's pray together.